This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. China is a place that continues to be in focus for market watchers, especially as trade frictions with the United States have heated up. We'll talk about that today, but also the other big topics influencing Chinese markets, the opening up of the stock market, fundamentals of Chinese corporates, how foreign investors are viewing the region, and much, much more. We're joined by Tim Mo, Chief Asia-Pacific Equity Strategist for Goldman Sachs Research. Tim's based in Hong Kong, but is visiting our New York offices this week, and his team recently put out a new report on what's going on in the Chinese markets. Tim, welcome to the program. Great to be back. Let's start with what clients are asking about first and foremost. How is the increasing tension between the United States and China on the trade front affecting Chinese markets and investor sentiment? Well, it's obviously top of mind. I've just been doing a number of client meetings in Hong Kong, Singapore, London, and New York, and this is topic number one that people are interested in for obvious reasons, given the difficult movement in stock markets and the news flow. The important point here, in our view, is to ground the conversation because we have a lot of headlines, which are sometimes positive, sometimes negative, and it's important to see what is the substance of what has currently been announced. And the quick numbers on this are that there have been $50 billion of tariffs announced. Only about two-thirds of those exports are China-added value. The other part is imported. And that with the 25% tariff, you're not going to cut off all $50 billion of imports into the United States. You do the cross-multiplication, you get down to some pretty low numbers. So the punchline here is we have not changed our China growth numbers at all, nor have we changed our earnings forecast for the China stocks listed in Hong Kong. And the key reason is that only 1.3% of the revenues directly come from the United States. So you can't get to numbers which are large in terms of the direct effect. What the market's concerned about is the uncertain potential escalation of tensions and how that might result in some further second-order effects with regard to, say, business confidence or retail consumption confidence. So, Tim, when we talk about the trade tension, I think a lot of American dialogue is still rooted in this idea that China is basically just a big export machine and that the entire economy is premised on making goods cheap with cheap labor and exporting to the United States. For those who don't follow the situation as closely, explain a little bit how the Chinese economy has evolved. I would make three points here, which I think are important for people to understand. Number one is if you look at the contribution to China's growth of trade, that's gone down from literally four or five percentage points of GDP growth in the mid-2000s to 1% currently. The current account surplus, by the way, is 1% of GDP. It used to be 10. So we've had a very significant decrease in the importance of the external part of China's economy to the economy as a whole, both in terms of, as I said, the current account surplus and also the contribution to growth. So that's number one. Number two, we have to remind ourselves that a lot of stuff is made in China, but China also is the end production locale for a whole supply chain of goods. And so the actual added value of a Chinese export in terms of what's actually contributed by China can vary. And in aggregate, for example, for the $50 billion of goods that are currently subject to tariff, we estimate that about two-thirds is domestic added value and the other is imported goods. So unfortunately, the trade issue is complicated by these very tightly woven global supply chains, which make it tough just to sort of single out a particular geographic location as the source of a problem. And somewhat overstate the numbers. Correct. And then the third to your question is that there's a rapid structural change that is part of a very clear five-year plan and longer-term policy objective to shift China's growth model from what you might say is 
version 1.0 to 2.0. So 1.0 would have been low value added, oftentimes heavy capital intensive and also debt intensive, export oriented production. And clearly China 2.0 is going to be much higher up the value added curve. It's going to be in different sorts of industries. Biotech, for example, is one that is very topical right now and a ton of research and product development and so forth is taking place. It's a very exciting theme in our view. And a lot of it is aimed at the domestic Chinese market, which now is much larger than it was before. And for many industries is the world's largest. For example, more automobiles are sold domestically in China than in the United States. So you've got a clear transition, which is being fostered by Chinese policymakers and encouraged by the release of the entrepreneurial talent. And this is inexorable and is happening at a faster pace than probably many people appreciate. So people are a little more concerned, not with the immediate tariffs, which are relatively small. $50 billion is a big number, but in the scheme of trillion-dollar economies, not so big. But at a fundamental level, what's the longer-term outlook for the Chinese economy if the trade tension stays at this level? If the trade tensions stay at this level and do not further escalate, then, as I said, we think that China is capable of growing this year at sort of mid-6% level. We're expecting 6.6%. Next year, we think there'll be a natural slowing because as the economy of China's size gets larger, the law of large numbers kicks in. And so over, say, a five-year view, we're looking for gradual deceleration. This is not affected by trade views. It's just the natural function of economies that are getting larger. So the trade tensions would be something which are an incremental, say, stumbling block, but nothing that's going to derail the underlying core China growth story in our view. In the short term, without rising tariff levels, the economy looks pretty solid. How about in the more medium and longer term with the changing size of the economy overall and the demographic issues that China's facing? In terms of the growth? In terms of the growth the trajectory growth. for the economy. It seems very clear, and we and many other commentators are expecting a similar outcome, which is that China's economy will naturally slow down to a growth rate that's probably more in the 5% level over the next five or seven years which is nothing untoward because you've got, as you mentioned, demographic issues where your working age population has peaked and is gradually moderating. That can be offset by the upgrading which is taking place in China's activity. And there's a very strong emphasis on improving the technology which is being added to China's manufacturing and a shift in the mix of manufacturing from the low-end export-oriented stuff, which was what powered the first 20 or 30 years of China's phenomenal growth, to higher added value activities and products, many of which will be focused on more of the very large domestic demand market. So that's sort of an inexorable directional tendency for China. And of course, cyclically, things will be affected by either the external global growth environment, the degree of tension on the trade front, and then also domestically, the severity with which China pursues structural reforms, which include a moderation of the credit growth, which took place over the last 10 years, and which is a feature of the environment right now. The domestic Chinese investment case remains pretty strong. And one factor that's played a big role is the further opening up of the stock market with the large MSCI index adding China A shares. What's been the effect of that so far? And what can we expect going forward? We have a very strong view that the opening up of the A-share market is something that investors globally really need to take very seriously and prepare for. And the simple reason is that the A-share market has a current market capitalization of about 9.3 trillion U.S. dollars, which makes it number two in the world after the much larger United States. 
And the free float of that is about $4.3 trillion. There's over 3,000 listed companies, and it's a market where foreigners currently own 1% to 2%. So global exposure is very low to a very large market, which is deep and has lots of opportunity for so-called alpha generation or stock picking capability. Now, as the China A shares become included in the global indices at progressively higher levels, then the institutional money, which is benchmarked against these indices, will be required to have greater amounts of China. Yeah, they'll naturally flow. They'll but what's been holding people back so far? It's, it's first of all that we've just started this year the introduction. So we've had two very small tranches. The first one of 2.5% inclusion factor has already occurred. The next one is upcoming in a few months. So for the full year 2018, we will have a 5% inclusion factor of the A shares. Over time, this will grow to 50% or close to 100%, benchmarking what happened to other emerging markets, including, say, Korea and Taiwan, over time. So as China continues to mature in its stock market management, and there are several criteria that MSC would like to see China change or improve that will be contingent upon MSCI, including China, at a greater amount. This, we think, will happen. It's a strategic objective of China's to increase its weighting in the global indices. It's part of its development plan for its own domestic capital markets. So people are just going to have to care about this very large market. And to give you a punchline statistic, at 100% inclusion factor, the A shares will be equivalent to about 17% of the MSCI Global Emerging Market Index. And that figure probably understates its future importance because that figure is based on inclusion for not the full number of stocks. If you actually broaden the universe of A shares that are included in the MSI indices, you could get to A shares being north of 20 percent. Which is 25. roughly the size of the economy relative to the global economy. Correct. But even more, if you also add the offshore China stocks, the ones that are listed in Hong Kong, Hong Kong yep. then you're talking about China overall in the emerging market indices, not sort of the global index, but in the emerging market indices, being well over half of that. So we think that maybe five years from now, we're going to be having a conversation where we're talking about emerging markets ex-China. Today, we talk about Asia ex-Japan, because Japan's so large. So you say, okay, focus on Japan on its own, and then let's look at the rest. Five years from now, we're probably going to talk about China on its own, and then whatever the rump is, <laughs> we can be talking about that. But China's going to become such a big and important part of the emerging market world and also a growing part of the aggregate whole MSCI global indices that investors will need to take it much more seriously and have a conscious plan for how to address and invest intelligently in the onshore A-share market. Last time you were on the podcast, you talked about another step that China took to open its markets. That was the Stock Connect program connected the Shanghai and Hong Kong exchanges and now Shenzhen. What's important to know about how that investment channel has developed today? It's a critical artery that's been opened between effectively the rest of the world and China and through the two dimensions that you mentioned. So the first, which is the southbound connect, which would be money coming from mainland China into the Hong Kong stock market. This actually over the past three years since the connect was first opened has become the largest single net source of buying on Hong Kong stock exchange that we've been able to identify. So we can track things like the flow of funds into Hong Kong through active mutual fund managers, through passive mutual fund managers, and a variety of other channels. And if you look at the, say, three-year cumulative total, the active money has been a very modest net buyer. 
passive money has been a greater buyer because there's been more money coming into emerging markets. But the southbound connect has dominated that. It's been like triple the size. So what's interesting is that the nature of the buying and of the money that's influencing share prices in Hong Kong is increasingly determined by onshore China investors. So that's the first point, which is an important sea change compared to, say, two, three years ago. The second, which is much more topical, particularly right now, is the scaling up of the northbound connect, which is foreign investors buying stocks into mainland China. And this, of course, has been catalyzed by the inclusion in the indices. And so just to give you a couple of numbers, year to date, we've seen net foreign buying of A shares through the northbound connect of about $26 billion. And that compares to the entire aspect of last year, and we saw about low to mid-20s. So in just half a year, we've done the same that we did all of last year. And if you look on a daily run rate, we're setting records in terms of northbound participation. And I think this is the active investors who are recognizing what I've just been saying, that you know the future is written clear. You could ignore China this year, because even with the 5% inclusion factor, A shares will only be 0.8% of the MSCI Emerging Market Index. So you could afford to ignore it, but you can't ignore it on the three or five-year view. And active money recognizes that and is placing their chips today. Wanting to get ahead of the trend. Yeah. Correct. Parallel to Stock Connect is a fixed income program, Bond Connect, which is relatively new, one year old. The idea is, like Stock Connect, to allow foreign investors more access to Chinese fixed income securities. How's that been working so far? It's still getting off the ground. The larger point here is that China's bond market is large and will get larger, particularly because from a structural standpoint, the authorities would like to broaden the financing options in China from pure bank lending and maybe some of the unregulated shadow banking to developing the what you might call the proper capital markets of bond issuance and also the equity market. So there's seemingly no doubt that China's bond market, currently large, will get larger. And the tagline is that this probably represents something like a trillion dollar opportunity for global investors. And we think, much like I just said about the stock market and how people just have to have some of that because it's in global indices, as China's bond market is included in various global benchmarks, investors will need to have some of that and will probably want to have some of that on an increasing basis as we go through time. As we sit here in June, there's been a lot of volatility, particularly around the trade issue. Talk a little bit about how foreign investors are viewing China and the Asia-Pacific region as a whole. The mood in just the last few weeks has clearly taken a move south. And the proximate reason is the increase of trade tensions and the announcement of the imposition of the $50 billion of tariffs. I think it would be too simplistic to ascribe it all to trade tension because in the background are a number of global macro factors which have been generally serving as headwinds for markets. And to be specific about this, it would be three main things. Number one is a slowing in the global economy. Our high-frequency indicators suggest that the global economy peaked in terms of its momentum in December or January and has decelerated pretty meaningfully since then. So the level of growth is still very good at about 4.3%, which is the latest reading we have for May, but that compares to 5.3% back in December. So we've had a, a slowdown in the global economy, which typically is something that markets are less comfortable with. That's number one. Number two, we've had continuing ratcheting up of U.S. monetary policies. Our projection for the Federal Reserve's monetary policy is four rate hikes this year and another four next year. And we've seen a backup in the 10-year bond yield from roughly 2.4% at the beginning of this year to touching 3% in recent weeks. 
So as monetary policy tightens, that's something which has some spillover effects and is also a gathering headwind. And then thirdly, and this is all kind of interrelated, is that we've got a strengthening of the U.S. dollar, which troughed in April and has since appreciated on a trade-weighted basis about 5 or 6 percent. And this has caused stress in some vulnerable emerging markets like Argentina, Brazil, Turkey, South Africa. And that's had some spillover effect into Asia, where for most of the economies, the actual macro vulnerability is much more robust than it was, say, five years ago during the taper tantrum, and definitely compared to the Asian financial crisis back in the mid-1990s. But sentiment is kind of overwhelming this and has resulted in some of the currencies coming off. There has been a need to have a prophylactic extra one or two interest rate hikes. And some of that combined with the trade escalation has resulted in investors taking profits and selling. And some of that selling has begotten more selling, so you get this market dynamic kicking into gear, and that's caused markets to be quite weak. How are the Chinese corporations performing, actually, when you step back from the market sentiment? How are these companies performing today? For years, some of them were big, but not necessarily as profitable as some Western investors would like. And has that picture changed and evolved? It's a great question, and I think it's really important to focus on this because, as you correctly said, market sentiment can lead to overshoots on both the upside and the downside. We're in that kind of mode right now where you've got this sort of self-fueling dynamic, which is or has been driving down stock prices. Step back and look at the fundamentals, and we think they're actually quite robust. So to give you some numbers, for the MSCI China Index, which is all the companies listed in Hong Kong plus the U.S. listed ADRs, the big cap companies, tech companies, we're looking for profits to grow in round numbers 20 21% this year. Now, that's slightly flattered by renminbi strength, which is currently under question, but even on a without any kind of currency flattering, the Hong Kong dollar or the local currency appreciation of profits is going to be 17% this year. And we feel roughly- Pretty healthy. Yeah, very healthy, right. Yeah. Um, now, on top of that, there's a higher frequency number that China publishes. The National Bureau of Statistics, NBS, publishes data on a very large pool of industrial companies that are both listed and unlisted, like literally like 300,000 companies, which have more than maybe 20 employees and something like that. And the latest data point there is that the profits grew 21% in June year on year. So we've clearly got a- robust profit picture still, despite concerns over slowing growth or escalated tensions on the global front. So we think it's important to ground the conversation in terms of what are companies earning and to look ahead a bit. Fairly soon, we're going to go into the second quarter reporting season. And we think that will be an important time for investors to get a fundamental pulse check. And if the profits are indeed healthy, as we expect, then that may cause investors to reassess how much markets have gone down, and maybe that might serve to help stabilize things. In your research, you talk a little bit about New China driving a lot of growth. Explain that a little bit for our listeners. The concept of New China is appealing, but somewhat amorphous. The idea, of course, is these are the new industries, and you can enumerate them. There would be the internet or e-commerce activities. It would be high-end consumer. It might be biotechnology or any parts of the healthcare chain new energy, pollution control, all that sort of stuff. As opposed to the old SOE, partially privatized steel. Precise, all the upstream metal bashing stuff. So in an effort to put some rigor around that concept, which is, of course, intuitively appealing, what we did is we went through an extensive and deliberate process of taking all roughly 4,500 China companies, whether they're A shares, H shares, U.S. listed stocks, et cetera, And without going into the details, we put them through a filter that said, 
what sort of characteristics do these companies and the 140-odd sub-industries that they belong to, what kind of characteristics do they have? What we were searching for was continuing high levels of revenue growth, profitability, strong levels of R&D, and low correlation with the economy overall. The punchline is we winnowed that 4,500 stocks down to 1,500 and said, this is new China. And we then looked at all the various fundamental performance characteristics comparing that bucket versus the rest, which we dubbed old China. And the numbers are striking. So whether it's revenue growth, whether it's earnings growth, whether it's share price performance, return on equity, return on capital, leverage ratios, all way better for new China than old China. And so this has been a structural theme for us to be literally pounding the table on for the past two years. What are some headwinds that the Chinese markets face overall? I'd say the key headwind right now, and this is super topical in terms of talking with investors, both onshore in China as well as around the world, would really be three things. Number one, of course, very topically is trade, which we've already touched on. Number two is concerns over a very tight credit condition in China. And specifically, there's objective evidence that policymakers have been clamping down on so-called shadow banking. And it's important to understand that this is a clear policy objective. So just to give you one set of statistics, the broadest measure of credit in China is called total social financing, TSF. And you can disaggregate that into core bank lending. And then the added bit would be social financing. There's a couple other things in there I won't mention right now. The key point I'm making is if you look at the bank loans, and this is monthly data, the year-in-year growth of the past sort of five years has been very, very steady at something like 10 to 12 percent, just consistent. What's really come down and why total social financing has softened is the shadow banking, and that was growing at 20, 25, 30 percent rates a number of years ago. The latest data point is 1 percent year-in-year. So there's very clearly a policy-inflicted or inspired crackdown on the shadow banking area with a view towards better regulating it and eliminating some of the unsavory practices which have accumulated in parts of it and eliminating critically some of the so-called moral hazard that has taken place where investors might have bought, say, wealth management products or other financial products which offered much higher yields, but they have implicitly assumed that they were government guaranteed. So it looked like free money. So you would do that as opposed to putting money in the bank because you get 3 or 4% more. So they're trying to impose some credit market discipline, and they're allowing some companies to fail, and they're stinging some people, but making sure they do it in a way where it doesn't sort of balloon and get systemic. So we think that's what's going on, but that is concerning investors because it's putting a crimp on funding domestically, and there's concerns about how that might affect, say, property companies, et cetera. That's the second issue. And related to that, of course, is the third, which is, are policymakers going to do some tactical course correction and ease policy in response to a recently weak data set for May, as well as the credit tightness, which I just mentioned. And the concern that we've been hearing is that perhaps China is now somewhat more focused on the longer-term positive strategic objectives of reform and maybe willing to take more short-term pain, which, as I said, is good in the longer term, but maybe more challenging for the market in the near term. So you talked about how tighter U.S. policy, monetary policy, is having an impact on China. How about Europe? The ECB signaled that it may wind down or begin to put the brakes on its QE program later this year. How might China feel the impact of that? Let me make a broader point first and then zero in on China. So one of the risks that we flagged more for 2019 and 20 as opposed to 2018 is the gradual transition from QE to QT. Now, the Fed has already started its balance sheet rundown and has a very clear schedule that it's mentioned. The ECB recently updated expectations 
actually they were slightly dovish relative to what the market was thinking, but they basically said, look, we're going to stop buying stuff. They aren't going to shrink their balance sheet. They haven't signaled that, but they're going to stop adding to it. And then, of course, the Bank of Japan, the last of the G3 big central banks, continues to buy at about 50 billion yen per month. What we've done is simply add those up and just say, well, what does that look like in terms of the global monetary central bank balance sheet impulse? And the punchline is that it still is net positive this year, even though the Fed is on its tapering program. But next year, and on our calculations, it's probably somewhere Q2, Q3, it goes negative. And so the issue, I think, which investors need to consider is that if we've had nine years of extraordinary monetary ease, much of which was aimed at helping financial assets rise, which then might have a trickle effect into the economy, and that was how the left-tailed risks of the global financial crisis were dealt with, then what happens when that all reverses, even with the best of intentions by central banks and the best of signaling? And that's something which we, I think, need to think about and markets will contend with in 2019. Now, for China specifically, I guess it's just a question of if global financial conditions start to tighten, then if China still is in the process of dealing with its own credit issues, how will that play through? And could it be an incremental greater headwind for them while they try to continue to prosecute the transformation of the domestic economy and the repair or the reduction of the credit excesses which built up post the global financial crisis? You mentioned some recent volatility in Chinese stocks. How does that compare to global index? China typically is more volatile than the global index. It's an emerging market, and particularly depends on which China you're talking about, but the A shares, which are 85% driven by retail investors, have tended to be much more volatile. And 2015 and 16 would be a classic example of that. So volatility is higher compared to what the global norm is. The difference is not anywhere near as great as it was in 2015, 2016. And parenthetically, we would note that there are a lot of differences between the current setup for the A-share market now compared to the excesses and the very substantial decline that we saw in 2015, 2016. So just by point of comparison, valuations, the amount of retail participation, margin financing, corporate profit growth, et cetera, are all better now than they were in 2015, 2016. So we would not use that as a template for what may be happening in the A-share market currently. In your research, you've noted two China-related events to watch in the back half of 2018. What are those events and what can we expect from them? Well, one we've already mentioned, which is the second tranche of the MSCI A-share inclusion, another 2.5% inclusion factor, and that'll probably spark some more foreign buying and so forth. The second one is the introduction of Chinese depository rights, CDRs. So this is China looking to encourage some companies that may have listed elsewhere, companies like Alibaba or JD.com, et cetera, here in the United States, to list back on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. And so they've codified the rules for doing so, and we think that's going to come into practice at some point later this year. And that's something which will be contributing to further trading and development of the domestic Chinese stock markets. So you already talked about the pressure on emerging markets. You say that China is fundamentally different from the other EMs. How's that tension going to play itself out? The pressure that some of the other large emerging markets feel, China has more capacity to withstand those external pressures? I think it does. But I think if there's one area of either vulnerability or stress, again, this is quite topical, is with the renminbi. The logic here, the fact pattern is that China is alone among all the markets we look at in Asia in terms of wanting to ease its domestic monetary policy against the backdrop of the United States having a firm policy of monetary tightening. And most of the other emerging markets that we're looking at, particularly pretty much every single market in Asia, with the exception for the time being of Thailand, 
having some modest form of policy tightening, which, by the way, is completely normal because if you look at output gaps, which is the difference between what the economy is functioning, what its growth potential is, most economies are sort of close their output gaps. So they need a little bit of central bank tapping on the brakes from a normal cyclical perspective. Against that backdrop, we've got China standing out as wanting to and easing monetary conditions domestically. Now, normally, if you've got an economy easing while everyone else is tightening, that would suggest there might be some downward pressure on the currency. And that's probably amplified in the current environment with its clear signs of concern in emerging market currency land, given what's happened in Argentina and Brazil and so forth that we've mentioned previously, as well as in Asia, the Indian rupee and the Indonesian rupee and the Philippine peso. So the punchline here is that the renminbi is weakening somewhat, but China needs to thread the needle of ensuring it doesn't overshoot and weaken too much while still pursuing its domestic monetary policy ambitions. And really what this requires is a close control over the capital account, which China has, but this suggests that they will need to keep a weather eye on capital flows to ensure there's not undue pressure to weaken the currency. So, Tim, how long have you been based in Hong Kong? If you add it all up now, it's 27, 28 years. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so you visit the U.S. and the New York offices a couple times a year, a few times a year. When you come back, what's your favorite thing about New York and what do you miss and what do you want to get back to in Hong Kong? Uh, well, I grew up in New York and not very far from Goldman Sachs' office here. So this is my stomping ground. So it's always great to come back and I'm here maybe four times a year or thereabouts. So uh, I have a pretty decent amount of contact. I'd say I'm just continually amazed at how the city continues to transform and evolve. I mean, every time you go around someplace and you say, oh, I remember how it looked. And then you say, well, there's a new store here. It's a new restaurant. There's something else that's different. So this is a city which has a tremendous vibe and energy and is always recreating and evolving itself. And if you're at all an adrenaline junkie like, <laughs> like you are, New York is a place that's hard to beat. And Hong Kong, what do you miss when you're over here for a week well, or two? The reason why I was originally attracted to Hong Kong in the first place is it felt a lot like New York, but with obviously a lot more Cantonese spoken. There's a similar vibe there. And if you're at all interested in Asia and what's happening, and of course, it's a huge and dynamic part of the world. And I've been fortunate to see the uh, tremendous pace of development over the past 30 years, then it's quite addictive. You want to go back and see what's changing. All right. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you can join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on June 28, 2018. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.